reality I've grown up with. Destroying my beautiful Pacific Northwest home that I loved so much before my eyes and looming over every decision I made. This is my path. Never let my destiny be written by my circumstances. And how long's it been since you opened your eyes? Tap into the light and it's all right there. Good morning, my name is Havana and I'm seven years old. Safari, we watched elephants roam for hours. It was magical. But I worry that a world without these animals will be a world that we won't want to or be able to live in. Call your representatives, tell them that this is a priority for you. Go home, build community, community organize because that's what's going to save us. And even though we lobbied the Senate earlier this week and that we're marching on the National Mall, where the change is really going to come from is from the bottom up. Girls, especially brown and black girls, are hurt the most by climate change and natural disasters. Girls are the ones who are kept out of school to do chores and fetch water, especially during droughts. I know because I drove by these girls with water buckets on my way to school. UNICEF says educating girls may, may be one of the best ways for communities to fight the negative effects of climate change. Welcome to the dirt. You are tuning in to the premier environmental news and environmental justice broadcast in the galaxy. The whole galaxy, that's right, especially that tiny portion of the galaxy called North Carolina. We are broadcasting today from an undisclosed location in the Old North State, trying to stay one step ahead of any forces who might want to shut us down. As you may know, this is our first broadcast since WSHA FM 88.9 in Central North Carolina quietly ended its live broadcasts after Shaw University sold its frequencies to a California media company for a pittance. Three and a half million dollars for a money-making station that's been a local voice in Raleigh for 50 years, just three and a half million dollars. And I'll just point out the obvious here. WSHA was a station owned by an historically black institution and featured programming that reflected, informed, and empowered black voices it was purchased by a company with a white board of directors and cookie cutter content produced thousands of miles away. Uh, it's a disgrace, but I digress. Y'all are here for some talk about clean air, clean water, clean justice. And as usual, there is a lot to say about all of those things. Uh, I'm going to wave my first guest into the studio here uh, coming in. By the way, Mike Linto is helping to produce today's show, so he'll get our guests set up on the mic here. Okay. I think we're, 
We should be good. Is the mic working? Can you hear me? I can't. Yeah, I think we're good. Okay, so joining me now is Upper East River Keeper Matthew Starr. Thanks Matthew, for having me. welcome to the dirt. Thank you. I hope uh, I hope the flight over here wasn't too <laughs> yeah. bumpy. I know it was kind of a bit of a trek, but we the re- ferry ride was was a bit insane. That part, yeah, yeah. I heard that part gets bad. I, we really wanted you on the show finally, so I'm glad that you were able to put that effort in and, and get here. So welcome. Thank you. Since you're here, uh, I figure maybe you could give us a fun fact about the North Carolina River. Hmm. So North Carolina rivers throughout the state, as you would imagine, change drastically. We have our coastal rivers, we have our Piedmont rivers, we have our western rivers. Our western rivers are some of the best locations for trout fishing anywhere in the country. Cool. Which is pretty neat and a big economic driver. Why it's important to protect those species. It's very neat. So, okay. Uh, first things first, the audio that we opened with today was from this past weekend in Washington, D.C., uh, where hundreds of youths marched on the National Mall to raise awareness of the urgency of addressing climate change and to energize young people to begin and continue organizing in their communities around uh, the issue of climate change and its tragic consequences. Uh, a new organization called This Is Zero Hour put the event together. I was up there, it was raining a lot on Saturday, but there was still fantastic turnout. Um, The audio that we pulled was from firsthand accounts on Twitter. Uh, Many of them came from the account of Mustafa Santiago Ali, who is the senior vice president of the Hip Hop Caucus. You can find him on Twitter at EJ in action. I highly recommend checking him out and he's got a fantastic podcast uh, that they produce at Hip Hop Caucus on the subject of environmental justice and climate justice. So uh, you should check that out too. It's called Think 100%. So anyways, Matthew, if it's not obvious, after this march, after the marches for science in 2017 and 2018, after seeing young people uh, like Hallie Turner and her team of young folks that we talked about take legal action against the North Carolina Environmental Management Commission around the issue. Climate change and climate justice is kind of the issue driving engagement and advocacy from kind of the Generation Z folks uh, when it comes to the environment. Uh, We're going to talk to one of the organizers of the event next week, uh, but I'm Really looking forward to, to seeing what's next for them and what they think came out of the march on Saturday. There were marches across the country as well. It wasn't just Washington, D.C. Sadly, no marches in North Carolina. But, you know, I think for the institutional leaders at the state level here in North Carolina, at the federal level, everywhere, it's a wake-up call. It's time to pay attention to the issue of climate change, to call out the issue of climate change and put it at the forefront of... Uh, you know, some political policy platforms because this is what the 30 and under crowd care most about for sure and they're, they're living with the consequences of this and will bear the burden of the effects of climate change for the course of their entire lives. Anyway, we have a great show today. There is a scooter invasion taking place in Raleigh and across the country and we... Uh, tested one of them out. It's 
an interesting experience. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We've got a transportation expert that we talked to, so we'll we'll get into the scooter invasion. And we have an interview with uh, Asheville's Dwayne Barton. He's the founder and CEO of Hood Huggers International. It is a group that's doing kind of anything and everything to protect uh, the local environment and the culture integrity of Asheville, of its American African-American history, um, the Barton Street community in Asheville. Uh, really interesting work that they're doing, really interesting guys. So we talked to him. You're going to uh, hear a little bit from that interview. Uh, first, there's a lot of things happening uh, current events-wise, including, yet again, a special session from the North Carolina General Assembly. They've not been convened for, they, they, they've been out for a month, adjourned for a month, not even a month, and they're back. They, all I can say is they must really hate being at home. It's, you know, they're supposed to be a part-time legislature. They've been anything but for the past, what, two years now, or more, or longer. They, um, well, I mean, let's face it, the more they hear, the more they get paid, the more per diem they make. Well, why are they back? And, and they get to do whatever they want. The, the ruling party, the Republicans in the state, keep coming back um, because maybe they see a little writing on the wall that, that, that they won't hold a veto-proof majority. Um, maybe it's that they're just trying to get in everything they can before the election, but regardless of, of their internal thinking on why they're doing this, they, they are continuing to come to Raleigh and continuing to do undemocratic things. And we know there was very little notice about this. Uh, State I, Senator Jeff Jackson hours, yeah, 24 hours. tweeted, you know, we've got, he, he tweeted out when he got notice of this and it was yeah. less than 24 hours before they convened. I mean, yesterday. these are our elected officials. They're not, they're, they're supposed to be doing what's best for North Carolina, but also in a transparent manner. Um, there's no way you can have transparency for a legislative session when the public finds out less than 24 hours before it happens. And what's more, uh, we can blame this special session on Twitter, <laughs> right? I, I, li- I mean, it was Twitter literally, it was, it was tweets that brought them uh, from all corners of the state back to Raleigh uh, in a bit of a panic, <laughs> right? So what, what was going on? Why, uh, why, why were they back uh, ostensibly? Yeah, so they were, back primarily, well, the reason they said they were coming back was primarily because there's a number of constitutional amendments that voters will see in November. And how those constitutional amendments, so it's a yes or no vote, how those amendments are presented on a ballot is very important. The Let's just hypothetically say you, you have an amendment called, you know, right to whatever, it's, you know, you're voting to add this to the Constitution of North Carolina. Well, it can be written in a rosy way, it could be written in a misleading way, it could be written in a very factual way that's hard to understand. There's a number of different ways how this can be written, or those amendments can be written on the ballot. And the n- normal process is that there's, what, three state officials who would get together and decide yeah, I think it's the, a, um, there's a law that's been on the books for yeah. quite some time, and it's, you know, basically when there's a, an issue put on the mm-hmm. ballot, you got a few sentences, like you're saying, to write, and it's these, the Secretary of State, uh, who's, you know, usually in charge of, like, election stuff, the Attorney General, mm-hmm. and uh, the head of, I think, legislative services, um, 
who all get together, you know, right. it's this three-person yeah. panel and, and get to decide how to describe these amendments on, mm-hmm. on the ballot. Uh, it so happens that two of those people currently are Democrats, yeah. Elaine Marshall, Secretary of State, and, uh, and Josh Stein, the Attorney General, friend of the show. And uh, they, you know, Republicans saw these tweets, literally. So the guy, the guy who wrote this bill way back when that put this into law in the first place, established this mm-hmm. triumvirate, tweeted about it. And they saw the tweets and realized that they left this stone unturned and have now decided to flock back to the state uh, so that they so can they presumably- So they can write it how they want it. Right. And, you know, Again, this is a veto-proof Republican majority who wants to stay in power. Therefore, they're going to write them in a way that best reflects the right side of the aisle, maybe not the center or what's best to be understood by the public. I just some of these issues that are going to be on the ballot are things like voter, you know, putting mm-hmm. into the Constitution a voter ID requirement Correct. Uh, that they've previously tried to put out and has been struck down mm-hmm. as unconstitutional. They they uh, are trying to put in a uh, a right to hunt and fish into the Constitution. And Which obviously is no not under there's, right. There's no threat to a no. person's you know uh, right or ability Hunting to hunt fishing or fish is in, the state in, North well in North Carolina. Sure, it's clearly just a you know it's a ploy. Trying to dr- yes. to drive people to um, that they think will vote for them to the ballot, and uh, there are a, f- a few other things too. There's a, a cap on uh, on income tax rates. I think they would cap it at seven or seven and a half percent of it. I think it's seven, and uh, that currently doesn't exist. So mm-hmm. we're also so you know, in the way that these things are described is very important, important. because very there's important. because there's so many of these, yes. and because voters are you know going to be a lot of people inform themselves at the very last minute mm-hmm. about what they're voting on. So it's hard enough to know everyone who's running and wh- wh- whom, who, and what races you you're allowed to vote on. That, that's hard enough to read the background of the candidates. Now you're just going to be bombarded with information about the constitutional amendments, and you, you know it's not like you can camp out in your fo- voting booth all day. You know you're probably voting some in, at lunch, or you know your kids are with you. Long lines. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. It's, it's just. I want to turn to a new topic now. If you live in one of the following cities, listen up Raleigh, North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, Washington, D.C., Columbus, Ohio, Nashville, Minneapolis, St. Louis, Milwaukee, New Orleans, Seattle, San Diego, Santa Monica, San Francisco, Denver. Uh, Basically, if you live in any city of a few hundred thousand people or Those more, they all sound like pretty cool cities. They are all like very a, cool cities. A who's who's of where I want to visit. They're getting cooler, but you need to listen up because there's an invasion. They're being invaded right now. Many of your streets, if you're in these cities, they're already occupied. Many of your fellow citizens are already under the influence of an invading presence. Look around you, at your neighbors, coworkers, friends, families strangers on the street, the chances are some of them have already defected to the other side, to this invading force. I'm talking about an army of scooters. Dockless, shareable, electric scooters. They are showing up everywhere right now uh, very, very quickly. If you're not familiar with e-scooters, 
here's a quick overview. Uh, a few companies have driven around and parked small electric scooters in clusters around the busier parts of major cities. Uh, anyone can use them provided that you download an app and jump through some other hurdles. You have to enter credit card info, scan your driver's license in some cases, etc. cetera. Uh, you use this app to locate the scooters and then unlock them by scanning a code on the scooter and then you hop on. Much and, like a bike share. Yeah, it's very similar to bike share. Uh, it's this, generally the same companies that are doing bike shares. And once you get on, you know, you follow local safety laws. Some of those are a little bit different than the bike laws because it's motorized, but you, you know, accelerate your way up to 15 miles per hour around town. Uh, there have been reports here and there of around the country the past few months of injuries. Uh, but I, I haven't really seen anything to suggest a, a massive epidemic of broken bones or something. I, you know, it's just you hear these anecdotal things, one in Nashville, one in Texas, and that kind of deal. We were curious about how people were actually using the scooters. They're very, very recent to Raleigh in particular. Uh, and also curious as to whether these things are actually eco-friendly uh, or whether they're just kind of fun to drive around. You know, are people displacing More cars? Of a right. Are, are, are people displacing yeah. cars and you know fossil fuel vehicles to to travel with these things, or you know how are they using them? Because because Bird, which is one of the companies in Lime, another one, claim uh, that these are so-called last mile modes of transportation, where you know so bus to scooter type of thing. Yeah, where okay. where you, you might have taken a car, taxi, Uber you know, from a train station or, you know, a park and ride at a, to a bus stop, something like that, you're replacing that with a scooter and thus it's eco-friendly. Uh, to, to find out whether people were actually using them in that way, uh, we took Corey Pilsen, who is a, a student at Duke University, out to the streets of Raleigh. He, was, he agreed to be our test subject. And we went out in search of, uh, of an available scooter in downtown Raleigh. While we were doing that, we talked to a couple of folks we saw driving scooters around the city, which there seemed to be a pretty overall positive impression of it, uh, of, of what was happening, with, of, of their use of the scooters. And, and we also spoke with uh, Molly McKinley. She's a transportation expert, uh, formerly on the board of Oaks and Spokes in Raleigh and currently with Bicycle Colorado. And she gave us some context uh, to all these new modes of urban transportation, like the scooters, like the dockless bikes that you talked about, e-cycles, have you heard of e-cycles? No. Electric bike, yeah. She talked about those a little bit. And, uh, and you know, we discussed whether or not this is all a good thing uh, from a transportation perspective. Uh, here's what we found out. All right. I'm looking at two electric scooters. Um, it doesn't look like they're locked up in any way or manner. It's just like, I'm now I'm really interested to see how this is going to work because it's just like you just walk up to it. Interesting. Huh. Well. So we're going to click the app. Yep. Yeah, well, we're going to click it and we're going to scan the barcode. It has a nice little bell. Is this a bell I can use? There we go. I thought this was the gas, or is this the gas? Uh, right here. Gas, okay. And then. Brake, all right. So anywhere? I think maybe just like go up to the corner and, and back. All right, let's see. 
I mean, this is kind of fine, honestly. No, this is cool. This is fun. <laughs> now I'm going to turn around. No, this is definitely fun. How much does this cost? How much does this cost? 15 cents a minute. I could do this, because this is fun. Like it's easy to drive. I feel kind of like a kid. It's not, it's, it goes kind of fast. Like I'm kind of scared now, because it's kind of fast. I, I do think these would be good for travel. I wouldn't use it for travel. For just because I also, I couldn't imagine, I feel like it'd be so embarrassing to fall off of one of these. Like, and it, I feel like if you're not, if you're not careful, because there were times where I was like, I tried to like floor it and like it went. <laughs> and so I was like, and if you're not careful, you, you're going to wipe out on this. <laughs> and so like, I don't know. I would I would definitely advise people to like not be, be on their phone. Not be oh yeah. Well just cause like it's a balance thing too. So you're on two wheels. So if you balance too far one way, you balance too far the other way, you're you're gone. But yeah, definitely don't be on your phone. It's easy to find. I kinda got lucky because my friend was on this one and he got off and I got on. The map was a little weird. It said that there was a scooter like in front of the Sheridan or so like but you have the option to make it chirp, which is actually kind of dope that you can like hit a button, it make a noise and you go find it. So I don't know that the like geotagging situation is perfect, but the ability to like do the thing, same thing you would do with your keys if you couldn't find them is like kind of sweet. I was like pleased with how fast it went. I think part of me was like, mm, this might be boring. You know, if you get on it and it, there's no thrill, there's enough speed to give you a little bit of thrill and then the rest is like, the wind is blowing. I'm not walking. This is so much nicer than walking. Yeah. I probably find myself, it was $1.45 to ride from one place to the next. I'm on time. I got a little breeze. Like, that's worth it to me. You know what? It's awesome. A uh, little odd not navigating the streets in a car. Uh, I don't usually bicycle either. Um, it, it, I mean, it's, it's awesome. It'd be awesome. Uh, head down to the farmer's market with a backpack grab some stuff, uh, vegetables, meat, whatever to cook, you know, half for about half a week or whatever. Um, I, shoot, on the way to the bar, maybe catch an Uber back. I'm sure you can't ride these things after a few drinks, you know. Uh, yeah, so, so many things, actually. Uh, just going to meet someone, meet someone at a restaurant, bar. We knew it was impending. Um, the, the city has had the dockless bikes for maybe about a year now. Um, so, you know, we knew it would just be a matter of time before, before they showed up in Raleigh and we knew folks would be pretty eager to pick them up. It's the scooters are still something that transportation folks are trying to figure out, you know, where do they go? How do we make rules around them? Where do they fit into this bigger um, transportation world. I'm, I'm very encouraged at this point by the, the use of the dockless scooters and the dockless bikes. Um, just that, that folks are willing to try new transportation options and that this is something that we're going to need to continue to make room for um, on our city streets. 
one of my biggest concerns is safety. Um, folks are, especially drivers, are not, you know, necessarily expecting people on scooters to be showing up in the streets yet. Um, so I think it's going to take a little bit of a culture shift to get used to, you know, having more more people using the roads in different ways. Um, I think it will be an overall positive that we'll see cities that are able to accommodate more road users and there's more options, more options for folks that, that doesn't mean you're a single person driving a car. Um, so I'm excited by that. Uh, would you... Would you, you know, use the scooter to go buy a, a bag of meat and fruit and take it home from the market? What? I mean, have you tried? Really have you tried one yet? Yeah, I've tried one. You did try because yeah. I mean, I I, I have it. now tried one. Yeah. You were you were with me when I tried one for yeah. the first time, and it, my experience was similar to to Corey's in that you know you're 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 immediately kind of. Mm. Surprised at how fast mm-hmm. it, it's got some pickup, and you're surprised yeah, when by we were that. Talking, you said it went 50 miles per hour. I was like, oh, oh my goodness! Like, yeah, yeah. On a busy sidewalk, on a on a little scoot. I would I would never disobey local traffic laws, which require you to ride in the street with a helmet on. So um, I don't know what you're talking about about riding on a busy sidewalk. That could not possibly have ever happened. What was your experience like? Um. It felt very much more like a, a fun little toy than, yeah. than a mode of transportation. Yeah. Switching gears, I had a great conversation with a man named Dwayne Barton uh, out of Asheville, North Carolina this past weekend. He is the CEO and founder of Hood Huggers International. It is a community organization that does everything from uh, tours of African-American historic sites and culture in Asheville to maintaining a community peace garden to uh, stream restoration projects. They're working a lot on a highway connector project in Asheville, the I-26 corridor connector. And I had a conversation with him about uh, his work and his relationships with the environmental community and environmental issues really fascinating organization, a really great model for organizations around the state and the country to follow. Uh, I'll let him tell a little bit more about what his organization does and how they're doing it. Here it is. Give me a quick overview of Hood Huggers International, uh, what y'all do for the community, and maybe a little bit about the the philosophy behind your work. Uh, I'm thinking of... E.W. Pearson and the Pearson plan and, and, and the influence on uh, what you do. Yeah, well, um, the goal of Hood Huggers International, it comes from, uh, the name came from the thing, um, Tree Hugger. It's like what people were willing to do to help save the trees and and forest. So we take that same attitude about protecting historically African American neighborhoods and doing whatever we can within our means to, to do that. But using um areas of focus of the arts, uh, environmental education and uh, social enterprise to sustain the work and um we use the arts to try to job like connect people 
and uh, use the environment to, you know, we have to redesign how we live as humans on the earth, and we have to redesign that. And I think historically marginalized communities should be on the forefront uh, of that work. But we have to start creating those inventions and that that discipline and that practice and that culture around it, and then I think everybody else will fall behind us. But it's so that's the goal. And then of course, how how would we sustain this work? So we gotta have conscious social entrepreneurs or conscious people who are want to make money in this environmentally conscious way, with equity always being in mind. And I live in a historically African American community that was founded by. This gentleman, E.W. Pearson, um, and it just amazes me about what he was able to accomplish or what the community was able to accomplish in these very challenging Jim Crow segregation era and all the <laughs> obstacles they had to deal with. And uh, another thing we do, we do this thing called hood tours, and that's when we try to go back and, you know, find those stories and try to learn from the, the, the history of what our ancestors did um, before and how were they able to do accomplish these amazing things under um, this, all this legal segregation and legal uh, opposition. And how do we use that, that, that knowledge and those experiences today to, to face what new challenges we have, or, or we can say old challenges and to, to create a, a better community for everybody. Talk to me about some of the environmental challenges that the Burden Street community Asheville faces currently. Uh, I know the I-26 connector is something that's kind of looming out there. Um, I, I'm really interested in the work that y'all put into that conversation and that fight and, and how you see it now. It's not slated to begin construction until 2020, but there have been a lot of changes in, in I think, the route. Um, do, you consider, do you consider that a win? Uh, tell me about I-26. I mean, uh, it's funny. We just had a meeting yesterday about I-26. Um, and... Uh, I don't know if if I don't know about winning. I don't know if there's wins. I don't know, man. He's talking about wins, but we we know like this highway expansion has a long history in African American neighborhoods <laughs> throughout the country. But this may be our third or fourth time that this highway is going to come through and take homes and businesses. Fortunately, this time, um, the community was able to organize themselves around 2010, 2009, and create a community plan and be ready to present this plan to DOT about what they would like to see happen in their community. If if you're going to come and take, okay, this is what we would like to see uh, as a community. And... um, I mean, we always have dreams and expectations on how we feel <laughs> the process would go and what would happen in the end. We're still going through that process with the DOT. They hired a consultant to help help us identify those things. Even though we had a plan we created 2000, in 2010, they had to ask us again and, and, and do some redesigning about what those ideas were. And um, so it's just been 
passed through um, this economic and development board with the city, and it's going to go before city council, I guess, in August. The city is going to, uh, I guess, adopt it or say, okay. And I, and then we'll know from there about what monies will be allocated um, towards the specific things the community identified that they would like to see. But, like, when you talk about the environment, we know, like, historically, historically, those um, low wealth communities are the ones that's usually targeted for for all types of you know highway expansion, hog farms, you name it. You know those communities are targeted. So how? Oh yeah, and the other thing is, is a real trick with that is the highway expansion, and then we got this whole gentrification thing happening at full speed in this community that used to be one of the most drug infested places that nobody wanted to move to. So we caught between these two um, these two uh, powers, very powerful powers, and 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 you have this community in the middle that did all it could to improve the conditions of the neighborhood, and now they they are being threatened by that that that, that work. So. I want to talk about gentrification in a second, but getting back to the highway, and we've we've talked on our show a little bit about the Easton community in Durham and the Easton connector that was slated to go around the north side of Durham and now uh, is being constructed through a historically African-American neighborhood on the, right. on the southern side of Durham. And, and as you say, these highway projects cutting through uh, black neighborhoods or black power centers is, is I mean, there's a historic context to that. Uh, that kind of disruption. And uh, one aspect of the fight in Durham uh, was that the Eastern community, to a large extent, was kind of left on their own uh, when it comes to the environmental community. There were environmental implications to the construction of the highway in addition to the social and cultural ones. And the environmental community kind of they they were in full support of stopping a highway that was going to run close to the Eno River on the north side of Durham, but when it came to the south side of Durham, there was just silence. And I'm wondering, you right. know, what 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 was what was the what was the collaboration like with the larger uh, environmental groups uh, on the I-26 connector? Was there any cooperation between different groups? Did any uh, anyone reach out to you? What was that whole landscape like in terms of the environmental organizations and, and that fight? Well, I, uh, I can only think of one. Mountain True is the one that's been at the, um, that's been a support. I mean, um, Julie Mayfield, she was the one of the um, original people that approached us around this whole community plan and and helping to support us through that and her being executive director over there. I think she was tied in, you know, she was locked in. But, I mean, just being Asheville and all the different environmental groups there, I can't name another one that I can think of right hand that, that either approached us to say, okay, this, this is what this, this is the support we can provide for you during this time. I mean, we know this was a long, drawn-out process, and maybe there were others. But I, I can't remember. The only one I can think of is Mount True. And, and I, I know there's an, uh, this Everybody's Environment um, group that I was a part of um, formed to try to get environmental groups to be more conscious. I guess they, they was trying to look at how they can 
diversify their, their, their workforce. But I think even then sitting in the meetings, I don't think it really occurred to me, like, why aren't these groups getting behind not only Burton Street, but there's a lot of African-American neighborhoods that's being threatened by, by some type of, you know, development or something like that. And, and I, I don't see it happening. And what I do see is, is, is this fragmentation of groups and neighborhoods and, and nonprofits and, and this silo thing that allows that communication and that effective and efficient type of work to not happen because everybody's looking in the mirror uh, uh, of themselves. And, and there's no reach out or connecting the dots and say, no, this affects us all directly or indirectly now or in the future. So... Getting to gentrification, uh, what I know, you know, you mentioned uh, in an interview like a year ago that there, the that the the very rapid influx of of new people uh, and construction projects and and all this stuff were bringing a lot of unexpected changes to Burton Street, um, and that and that relationships were kind of hard to develop. And, and I'm wondering uh, now a year since uh, even that, what the landscape is, is looking like from a gentrification point of view and um, you know, are, are people doing enough at a, you know, the city, town, county, institutional level uh, to protect the, the culture and historic nature of, of Burton street and, and other neighborhoods in Nashville. No, that that's not happening. No, that's not happening. But between the gentrification and the people coming in to flip the houses, I mean, they buying the land and flipping them for four hundred fifty thousand, whatever. No, that's not happening. It's, there's, but not to say like the community was blind to this. We knew when we was doing this work, we started seeing some development happening, and that was part of the reason why we created this green opportunities thing was a way to empower the community to help rebuild themselves and to take advantage of this we knew wave of development that was happening. But around the time we started Green Opportunity, that was 2008, that's when everything crashed and everything slowed down. So it was like, um, but when it came back around, I don't think the organization or people was in a position to take advantage of it with the hopes of people staying in their homes and stuff like that and, and being a part of the wave and not of victims of it. I don't know. I don't think there, there, there was a process. And I think even when we tried to do a land trust, I forget what year that was because we knew this wave was coming. A lot of the, I can't say a lot of it, but some people who, who were in the affordable housing community, you know, um, said, no, nah, I don't think y'all to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think y'all to approach that like that through a land trust. So, I mean, being a community that's just come through this whole cleaning up the neighborhood with all this drugs and fighting that, and then you come out of that, you think you got time to breathe, and then they talk about a highway expansion, and then you look up again now, you have all these homes built in the neighborhood. It's like a, it, it can wear a community down, especially if you don't have, uh, you know, say, the, the education capacity or professionalism to deal with these myriad of things that's happening. And feeling like your your city and your county is just sitting, you know, in the stand. You know, what I mean, they they not on the sideline, not in the field. Well, I'm running out of time. Um, unfortunately, there's a a lot that we could 
talk about. I want to, you know, I maybe get back to you and talk about the the community peace gardens. I want to talk about Smith Mill Creek and the Greenway restoration. Um, a couple things before we go, though. You are a poet, and uh, I dabble wow. in some of that myself, and I, I see the power of poetry and the written word. And I'm interested in hearing from you. Uh, how important or what role do you see poetry playing in the work that you do? Yo, it's, it's the therapy. Arts is the therapy. See, our focus is the arts, the environment, the social enterprise. If it weren't for the arts, I don't think none of this stuff would be kicking off. It's the therapy, it's the connector, it's the healer. So, it, it, you know, it's, 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 it's the thread, it's, it's the heart <laughs> of the work. And it, and it can go in so many different forms, and it can be empowering. It's it's just it's the key, you know what I'm saying? It's like the neighborhood is is the headwater. That's where it begins. I don't care no many nonprofits, government agents, schools. No, if the if the neighborhood ain't strong, don't nothing. It don't get better downstream. If the neighborhood is rotten, you know what I mean? It don't make sense. So yeah, that, I, that's what art is. Is, is the key, is the heart. Where can listeners find more information about Hood Huggers International? Um, um, hoodhuggers.com. Hoodhuggers.com. Hoodhuggers International. Yes. Check it out. Come, if you have an Asheville, come and check out a tour. we tell you the history and talk about what's going on right now and what's our plans for the future. Mr. Barton, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. We are running out of time, but before we shut down, uh, broadcast from our secret undisclosed location. Have to jump back on the ferry. Have you seen, uh, you know, I wanted to point out, you know, during our climate change conversation uh, earlier on, and I forgot, have you seen this iceberg? Uh, Oh, the Greenland iceberg. Yes, there's a a small village on the coast of Greenland that is just... It's being devastated by this yeah. gigantic iceberg. What's going on with that? <laughs> it's climate change, my man. Um, you know, I don't think we tie climate change into enough of the stories that we do on the show. Almost every story that we've touched on since we've been broadcasting has a component of climate change. Endangered species has a component of climate change. Um, many, many, many of the things we have talked about almost all of them have to do with climate change. And this is a great example. An iceberg causing tsunamis havoc. in havoc. the Arctic. I, you know, it's, look, the, the, reading from a, a New Yorker article about this, uh, the iceberg was, is uh, 300 feet tall, which is the height of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> it's insane. It weighs an estimated 10 million metric tons, which is equal to 30 Empire State Buildings. Uh, this thing is, is just absolutely massive. It's got, you know, <laughs> if, if from this article, if a big enough part of it uh, came off in a process known as calving, mm-hmm. it would cause a tsunami. It would destroy completely uh, the little settlement um, that this thing is. Uh, yeah, we're, we're not talking about small chunks of ice falling off this thing. We're talking things the size of cars or buses or. Right. Know, this is this is absolutely 
terrifying. I mean, this is, is creeping its way towards this village. So from this article, Eric, uh, which is by Carolyn Corman, by the way, Eric Rigneau, a glaciologist from the University of California, Irvine, said that it probably, the, the iceberg, probably originated from one of the nearby glaciers that flow down the fjords along Greenland's west coast. Those glaciers have long been notable for pushing a lot of icebergs out into the sea. Nowadays, the glaciers are in retreat. More ice is more rapidly breaking from the glacier's face than snow is accumulating on its back. With climate change, uh, what happened here is expected to occur more frequently. Uh, Joshua Willis, a glaciologist from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, put it in simple terms, as things continue to warm up, more ice is gonna come off and float around. Uh, Drought-stricken South Africa, by the way, wants to tow one uh, of these icebergs to Cape Town to prevent, they've got a water crisis going on, they wanna tow it down to Cape Town so that they will have a source of fresh water to prevent the company's tap water from running dry. What? <laughs> yeah, that's my reaction as well. Uh, okay, we are officially out of time. Uh, you can listen to the show on iTunes. Check us out on SoundCloud, The Dirt FM. Check us out on Twitter at The Dirt FM. You can find Matthew on Twitter, Upper News RK. Uh, thank you to Mike Linto and North Carolina Conservation Network for helping to put the, this show together and to our many guests for their contributions to the, to the program today. I think, uh, I think that's it. I, I want you to want to wish you, Matthew, a safe journey uh, back home from, yeah, uh, from uh, here. I think the, the chopper should be outside shortly. To, chopper to ferry, ferry to train. You know, it's, very, it's, it's very it's I, tough. I hated to do it to you, but it was absolutely... Yeah. Absolutely and my last worth mile, it. I will be on an electric scooter. Okay, that's what I was hoping to hear. <laughs> I want to leave you all with a song from an artist out of Jacksonville, North Carolina. His name is Jake Potter. He's the man behind our new play-in riff today. And if you're in the Raleigh area, you can catch him at Brewster's Pub in Cary on Saturday, July 28th, and at McKinley's Irish Pub in Clayton on August 18th. Uh, look for Jake Potter on Instagram for more information. Here's a song, Virginia's for Losers. Till next time, I'm out. Genius for the
losers, losers like me.